Welcome to the podcast. This is the sixth episode of Spam 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 Humbug. I am with Stan the Fury Dragon, also known as WTF Dragon or WTFD if you prefer. Um, and now you know what it means. So uh, I'm joined uh, by a couple of who have become now the, the regulars for uh, these podcasts. I'm going to kick introductions over to, um, you know what, Sanctimonia, you go first this time. Hello, this is Kevin Fishburne, otherwise known as Sanctimonia, or Boolean Dragon, the developer behind the game Sanctimonia, and more recently, the sci-fi shoot-em-up Sylph. All right, and Linguistic? Hi, Linguistic Dragon here. I am the author of the Ultima Journeys blog. All right, and I guess I should mention what I do. I kind of run the Ultima Codex and then the main editor and content provider there. All right, so tonight's episode, and we're going to try and keep this to under an hour if we're really, really lucky because we're getting off to a bit of a late start. Title is The Manuals Were Beautiful. And the reason for that is, okay, now granted, um, Kotaku would never be mistaken for the most historically literate gaming-focused website ever, but... They posted an article recently which purported to discuss the beauty of the game instruction manual. And there were several manuals. Um, they actually uh, mentioned both digital and physical manuals um, for games like Min Kimura, uh, Tomb Raider, We Love Katamari, Mojib Ribbon, and I hope I pronounced that even halfway correctly, Final Fantasy VII, Bangayo, and even Space Assault. These were all discussed in the article, and a few other games were shouted out in the comments. And you know what? Granted, actually, there was some really beautiful and interesting and inspired manual artwork on display in the article, uh, in all the examples provided, but notably absent from both the article and the ensuing discussion. And remember, this is about the beauty of the game instruction manual. Notably absent was Ultima. And so we get back to what I was saying above about historical illiteracy. So, um, just to start, I mean, the artwork of the manuals that, and not just, you know, um, not just, you know, like any single manual, like, I mean, some Ultima games, I could probably go and grab my Ultima 9 box off the shelf, but since I don't have my webcam enabled today, it would be kind of meaningless, and it's not like we actually post the video. So, um, what, uh, you know, if I open the Ultima 9 box, what am I going to find in there? I'm going to find the Tapestry of Ages, I'm going to find the manual, which is, you know, sort of the, uh, the guide to Britannia, I'm going to find the spell book. Uh, there are distinct books in the Ultima 9 box. If I open up the Ultima 6 box, which I, which I wish I still had, I'm going to find the compendium, which uh, takes a different approach. It combines the spell book and um, the, the manual into uh, the Guide to Britannia into a single volume. And, you know, it has to be understood that these were all of them written, or nearly all of them, were written more or less in-universe. You know, they were written often by characters that you could encounter in the game. They were written um, from the perspective of characters who inhabited the worlds. Uh, you know, Britannia, uh, Serpentile, in the case of Serpentile. And in and around all of that, there was utterly beautiful artwork uh, again, just about every single manual. Uh, not just, you know, nice cover art, but uh, on each, or nearly each, on, on many of the pages, you know, like uh, in most of the manuals, you'll find a full bestiary describing um, most or all of the monster forms and foes you're likely to encounter as you adventure in Britannia, in whichever Ultima game you're playing. And... With most of these, they will be accompanied by um, sketches, artwork, uh, a lot of it drawn by Denis Loubet, you know, depicting each and every single critter. Um, and, you know, just gorgeous artwork, uh, especially like black and white line art. Like these are just inspirationally excellent drawings. Um, things like, you know, the, uh, the compendium, uh, I mean, Ultima 6 being my favorite, I can always remember the compendium, you know, it also had. Um, this really elaborate bordering on the pages, and there were like images of some of the different merchants in their shops. Um, just, you know, ton, tons of, of visual uh, 
visual references, um, sort of, you know, <laughs> enhancing the experience of reading through this manual. And of course, it was, you know, really quite important to read the manual for the game, to really understand the world that you and your character were about to inhabit. Um, well, I'm just trying to think here. I mean, uh, the, the, the gallery that we maintain at the Ultima Codex is, is far from complete in this respect. Um, but, you know, uh, we've seen things like the, uh, if you troll through the gallery, you know, you'll find uh, manual design boards for the Ultima 1 manuals. You'll find um, clue book art from the Japanese clue book for Ultima Underworld. Uh, you'll find design notes for the box art and packaging of Ultima 9. You'll find cover art sketches drawn by Warren Spector, actually, not by Dennis Lubay. These are kind of Warren Spector's um, ideas that, you know, Dennis Lubay would then fully realize. Um, you'll find manual art and character sketches for Ultima 9. You'll find images from the Japanese clue book for Ultima 6. You'll find some Ultima artwork by Lee McLeod, which I believe was for the Nintendo ports. And... Uh, you know, just other examples of manual art and, and paintings that were used um, to to illustrate the game box or the manuals. We do we have seen a, a fair bit, um, but anyways, that's kind of how I wanted to lead off. Um, but I'm going to invite uh, either of my my co-casters here to you know ch chime in. I mean, I can talk a little bit about the compendium or at least what I recall of it. But I, I think it would be better if we kicked it over to the podcast group to kind of. Uh, throw in some additional commentary here. Well, okay. Um, as far as the artwork in the Ultima manuals goes, um, what stands out to me are are the spell books. Um, Ultima 4 is in particular, because that's the one I remember clearest. Um, it's I just I just love the feel of it. It's it's the old manuscript of arcane knowledge and it really feels like that based on the way it's the artwork is presented um all the pages have an elaborate border featuring the reagents and potion bottles and all sorts of of magical paraphernalia um the um section detailing the uh, different reagents and their specific properties. Uh, the initial letter of each of them is is done illuminated. Um, uh, like the spider silk has the S wound about with strands of spider silk itself. Um, the B for blood moss has moss growing all over it. And um, each of the spells themselves have a full page illustration of the spell's effects, like the... Um, the Y up and Z down spells actually have images of, of, you know, a group ascending or descending through the ceiling and floor of a dungeon. And the sleep spell has orcs falling asleep on the battlefield. And it, it's very evocative of something that in game doesn't really have all that spectacular an effect. So it's kind of nice to have that image in the back of your head when you're making use of them. Yes, that's very true. As Stan the Fury mentioned earlier, the majority of the manuals were written from the perspective as being actual in-game objects, something that you would in fact find uh, within the world of Britannia. Um, for example, as Linguistic mentioned in the Ultima Four spellbook, uh, the first thing you see on the front of the manual um, is a dark brown textured thick paper um, tome uh, with metallic gold runes actually um, telling you the title of the book as well as the border of it being completely in runic. So it very much puts you into the spirit of the game that they're trying to convey, um, sort of really making it easy for the player to suspend their disbelief before entering the game proper. So while it's certainly based on the actual content and the real spells of the game, it takes it to a higher level that makes it that much more real uh, for the player. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's especially because, you know, I mean, Ultimas definitely, you know, come from an era where the game doesn't hold your hand as you dive into it, right? Like, you know, um, 
there's not really a tutorial per se that you work through. There's just uh, the the game starts. Uh, Ultima Six starts. Your you see the opening intro sequence, and it describes how you nearly get sacrificed by the gargoyles, and then Dupre Shaman and Yola come and rescue you, and then the next thing you know, you're in Lord British's throne room, and there's a bunch of gargoyles there trying to kill you, and well, now you're in the game. Have fun if you make it past the first 30 seconds. Which, I mean, isn't that hard. You can actually run away from that fight, um, I've discovered. Uh, although it usually means leaving one of your party members behind to take a real beating. But anyways. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, as you, um, you know, as you start to wander into Britannia, and I mean, again, you know, like, uh, to me it was actually more weird to find in the other Ultima games that the spellbook was often separate from, uh, from the, uh, the, the the manual or the you know the description of, of Britannia and the land and the cities and the towns because you know I was I was always so used to how it was handled with the compendium um, where you know you just uh, it was all one cohesive book right and I mean you know you go through and it's just uh, but it was you know interesting seeing um, you know like depictions of of the gremlins or uh, other monsters that you'd encounter in the game, and then you encounter them in the game, and granted, I mean, they're much more pixelated versions of themselves versus what's, you know, been drawn, um, but, you know, it's still recognizable, oh, yeah, that's a deer, oh, yeah, that's a gremlin, oh, yeah, that's a wolf, um, you know, even the, uh, <laughs> I mean, at times it could be a bit of a letdown too, right, because, you know, I don't think it was, maybe, maybe by the time of Ultima 7 did Reapers look roughly as fearsome as their depiction in the manuals, right? Um, they don't really even look like angry trees in Ultima 6. They just kind of look like a log with four flailing arms uh, to, that occasionally lobs lightning bolts at you. I think it's four. Maybe it's three. Um, or what's another one? What's another good one? Um, Gazers was, was another one where I don't think they really, you know, reached their full potential in terms of, you know, looking like the excellent artwork um, maybe until Ultima Underworld. Think by about Ultima Underworld, you know, what you saw when you encountered a gazer was more or less consistent with the manual art. Whereas, I mean, again, in Ultima 6, there's like this little weird-looking orb thing. Um, not the, the multi-eyed monstrosity. I can't believe it's not a beholder that you see in the manual. So, Well, a counterpoint to that argument would be that, you know, in the early days of computer role-playing games... Uh, such as Ultima 1 through Ultima 5, essentially, uh, most of the graphics were actually symbolic. They did not attempt in any way to provide literal interpretations of what your imagination would be telling you with the manuals you would actually see in-game. Um, for example, the solid black backgrounds to allow the tiles to interconnect and the perspective not being absolutely correct to the disconnect uh, between the perspective of the different tiles that they used. Um, it wasn't until Ultima 6 that they really tried to unify uh, the assets into something that was that could be interpreted more literally. Um, so I think in many ways the artwork for the manuals sort of guided your imagination to let you know, you know, of course, the game artwork is in fact symbolic, which anyone playing the game at the time would have expected, but it would allow your imagination to know sort of direction that it should go in, what they were trying to convey in a more literal manner. Um, so playing the game itself, if you were playing it at the time it was released, then the context of the limitations of technology at the time um, wouldn't so much be a letdown, but I think it was actually enhanced by the manual artwork because your imagination was forced to fill in the blanks anyway. I'm I'm in agreement on that point. I mean, um, take something like Martian Dreams, for instance. I mean, this is um, at least with the previous the the I can't talk um, the um, the uh, main series of Ultima games. These are fantasy creatures that that you kind of bump into here and there if you're familiar with other fantasy work, like the I can't believe it's not a beholder. Um, but with Martian Dreams, those were completely out of left field in some instances and and as beautiful as the engine is for its time um you couldn't really get the detail that you could in the artwork of a manual like the jumping beans of martian dreams are just mm -hmm. basically little specks that bounce around on the screen whereas in the manual 
they're almost rodent-like. They they kind of remind me of uh, kangaroo rats in some respects. Um, so it's kind of nice to have that image as you wander through the world. It's It kind of fleshes it out a bit more in ways that were not easy to procure at the time. And, you know, to be fair to Kotaku, I think they make a lot of the same points in their article. Um, the the author, uh, Kara Ellison, or Kara Ellison, uh, is talking about Min Kimura. And, um, you know, she's talking about how it was just a browser game that she was checking out, and she was surprised to see this PDF accompanying it. Um, and within it, she found a detailed map of the game and illustrations of the characters that you might find. And she goes on to say that, you know, because it's a game that is purely about wandering and sitting and contemplating, there are no enemies as such, and it's really a game about what you think as a player. Um, so it kind of has an odd feeling of lostness about it. But the manual, she says, makes it seem pleasant and even inviting to sit in a place with bouncing shapes and colors. She says, I wouldn't feel the same about this game if it weren't for the game manual. There's a lot of spirited optimism in it, and the game world is more abstract without the manual's welcoming sunny tone. It got me thinking about how much deeper game worlds can be when they are accompanied by a good manual. Um, and certainly that seems to be true in a lot of the other examples that come up. You know, even something as simple as um, Tomb Raider, you know, uh, it introduces you to the game world with a lot of narrative um you know it talks about lara croft um you know talks about her her wanderlust and how she basically financed her various travels by writing travel books it's not something that you pick up in the game but there it's fleshing out the character for you um you know how katamari's manual tells you that it's going to be a cute and silly and very very happy world and well that's pretty much exactly what it is um it, you know, it talks about how the, the Final Fantasy VII manual really communicates uh, the, the intricacy of the systems that are at work in the game. Or, um, you know, just how it adds a layer of personality and, and comedy to a game. So it's, 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 I think, very much true in that, you know, yeah, you're, you don't necessarily see... Um, you don't necessarily, yeah, see in-game the, the same level of artwork that accompanies it in the manual. And, you know, that could even arguably be said to be true of Ultima 9, because even though in Ultima 9, you know, things looked a lot closer to their depictions in the manual, I mean, you're still dealing with uh, late 90s 3D tech, right? Like, the gazer looks really cool when you encounter it in the game, but it looks even more fearsome as an illustration, and that's almost fitting somehow. Um... Because, again, as you go through the material, it does really invite you to step more into the game and into its lore and its mythology. And uh, and at the same time, you know, when you actually encounter one of these things, you know, you're looking like it, it's instantly familiar to you. So um, definitely, definitely an enhancement of richness there. Yeah, I have to completely agree with that, actually. And something that a lot of modern games, unfortunately, don't do these, day, uh, do these days is consider that you know, g games will attempt to emulate older forms of media. Um, for example, the cutscene in a game obviously is trying to emulate film. Um, and older games like Ultima 5 that actually took the time to create these elaborate manuals um, that not only had excellent, you know, creative and extremely believable and well-written text, uh, but also excellent illustrations, is they were levering uh, traditional forms of media, such as novels, you know, or illustrated, uh, you know, paintings, drawings, things like that, they were lev leveraging that power to more fully realize the environment that they were trying to create, for better or worse, using the technology of the time in the form of a game. Um, so, you could consider, for example, the actual artwork, the actual drawings in the Ultima manuals combined with the uh, excellent descriptive uh, text uh, that sounded like it came directly from the uh, game universe itself. Uh, when that was combined with the actual gameplay, uh, there was almost a one-to-one -one ratio uh, between the information given in the manuals, uh, both visually and, and textually, with the actual content of the game. I think that's a, a very powerful way to create a universe, uh, because they were really... I, I feel a need to interject there. Sure. Because um, um, what you're saying about how the text 
uh, and the way it's written kind of draws draws the reader of the manual in. Uh, a couple of the Ultima manuals actually experimented with unreliable narrators. I mean, Ultima 7's manual is written by Batlin, and in his descriptions of the history of Britannia, he kind of calls out the Avatar as maybe not necessarily being the best thing for Britannia in subtle ways. I mean, it's it's not it's hardly particularly direct, but it's still there, and it kind of puts the player in the mindset that whoa, maybe this isn't. The, it, it kind of sets the stage for the feel of the Fellowship as a whole. And uh, Serpent Isle's manual is written by Airstum, who has no idea of what happened in Britannia past Ultima Three, and views Lord British as this terrible tyrant, and it shows in the manual. So I, I like the, the, the fact that what actually... Um, that that the, the the manuals themselves actually contain as much character as the characters themselves in game. That's very true too. I actually ah, oh, I wish I had the Ultima Seven manual in front of me because it occurs to me now. Like I mean, I can remember some of the art, but mostly what I remember is the uh, the uh, you know, like the the images of Batlin and things like that. And it it just it got me thinking that you know I wonder if the style of art is more um, propagandic. I, I, I don't actually, I can't summon to mind like how the manual, say, depicts the Avatar historically, but it would amuse me greatly if, you know, it seemed a little bit more, like I say, propagandic. It was, you know, like the, the Fellowship and its members are kind of, you know, depicted rather in, in a very heroic, in a very enlightened sense. It would be uh, interesting to me to see if, you know, the Avatar was depicted not necessarily as a villain, but in, you know, sort of a more um, dour or, uh, you know, less appealing way. But again, I don't have that in front of me. I, I sadly, I, I regret actually that a lot of my uh, my Ultima game manuals met bitter, bitter ends at, at the hands of my recycling obsessed father. <sighs> Sad days. Um... You got something? Well, there? that's that's something I I hadn't considered before, but yeah, I'm I'm, I'm paging through um, scans of the Ultima Seven Seven mm-hmm. uh, manual in other windows here, <laughs> and um, most of the artwork of the Avatar himself and the and the descriptions of the um, of Britannia's history are pretty much stylized versions of the uh, cover art for most of the games. Okay. Um, but what's catching my eye is is um, the bit where Batlin's talking about the value of virtues and the virtue of values, and how you know the kind his his uh, interpretation of the virtues is kind of waning and the values of the Fellowship kind of coming into more greater prominence, and it's accompanied by. Um, by an image of basically a large stone onk with, you know, light on it from one side casting a shadow. And the shadow of the onk is considerably larger than the onk itself. And you mentioning how much of the artwork might be kind of considered propaganda style. I don't know. I'm kind of looking at that image a lot differently than I used to, seeing that <laughs> um, kind of implying that the virtues are a shadow of what they once were. Yeah. Um I should get you to like take a photo of that or scan it or I'll like look for it online and we'll include it with the show notes because that would be a good one to, to call out here. Um, <clears throat> the other thing I think that's worth mentioning, or actually before I get into that, um, Boolean, you wanted to interject something there. Yeah, I just wanted to say that if that was intentional by making the shadow of the Ankh larger than the Ankh itself, um, that's an incredible amount of thought that went into the artwork with respect to the story that they were trying to convey. And not only that, but in retrospect, particularly if you listen to something like uh, all of Spoonie's <laughs> reviews of Ultima and uh, how he feels about the Avatar and his influence on Britannia as a whole across the series, uh, that very much reflects the unintended consequences of following the path of virtues as described in Ultima and that the shadow of virtue is, in fact, much larger than the virtues themselves due to the unforeseen consequences that, in the story, affected the entire world more often. To, uh, you know, the, a larger a larger net evil uh, than a net good. 
very, very true. And I mean, that is actually ultimately, you know, the theme that Origin elected to wrap up the Ultima series with in Ultima 9 was, you know, yeah. And I think we touched on that in an earlier podcast, the fact that, you know, the whole running theme of Ultima 9 was the fact that, you know, you as the Avatar, I mean, have, yes, saved Britannia uh, on numerous occasions, but each time it has caused problems that you've had to then come back and deal with down the road. You discover the Codex in Ultima 4. Um, well, the raising of the Codex causes, uh, well, I mean, A, you've just stolen the Gargoyle's Holy Book. Good job. Um, but, you know, B, it causes considerable uh, issues in the underworld, uh, which Lord British then sets out to explore and catalog um, and, of course, gets trapped. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the regent he's left in charge gets corrupted by the Shadow Lords, who, of course, by the way, came from the shards of Mondane's gem. So back to Ultima 1 there. Um, and then when you save Lord British, you basically devastate the underworld and collapse most of the gargoyles around and kill off most of the gargoyle race. And that, plus the previous injustice of stealing their holy book, has them then come boiling up out of the dungeons of Britannia, bent on, you know, ending the, the people of Britannia. So you come back and deal with that, and you resolve it in a way that leads to peace, but then, of course, you have the situation you see in Ultima 7, where the gargoyles are kind of this um, somewhat ghettoized and isolated. Um, and then, of course, you know, meanwhile, it's ultimately discovered that by, by dint of becoming the Avatar, you have also led to the creation of this Guardian, which is guiding the Fellowship, which is, um, you know, slowly and surely plotting to destroy uh, Britannia and you and Lord British. Um, so, yeah, and then by, you know, by the time you get to Ultima 9, you've also completely devastated the world of Pagan um, and Serpentile. You know, you, you certainly mess things up there quite, quite handily. So yeah, by the time you get to the end of Ultima 9, it's it's kind of, you are the Avatar and you've saved Britannia many, many times, but goodness, the trail of destruction and um, just not cleaning up after your messes <laughs> that you've left in your wake is profound. That is, I think, the ultimate irony, if you will, of the Ultimate series with its focus on the virtues is that the Avatar, the hero of the game, is in effect repeatedly saving Britannia uh, from themselves, from their own past actions, the unintended consequences of their past actions. So you're in fact your own worst enemy. And from um, Lord British's inaction, right? Um, which is kind of the other thing that really um, gets highlighted and, and played out in Ultima 9 is the fact that, you know, he does actually decide to get up off his throne and go and solve the Blackthorn problem himself. Um, you're actually mostly... You're, you're fighting your way through the dungeon to get to where he's dealing with Blackthorn, but when you get there, you're basically just watching the show. You're not, uh, you're not really doing much to help it, uh, help it resolve. So, but anyways, um, I think we're a little bit off the topic of art. Um, I think one of the other things I wanted to call out too was the fact that, you know, it wasn't just with, with Origin, it wasn't just the manuals, right? It was the clue books too. The, the, and the same conventions applied. You know, this wasn't a, a prima strategy guide. This was, you know, someone at Origin. Um, and where there was like, I know Aaron Alston wrote, I think one at least, maybe two. Um, I think Sherry Green Array might have contributed one. Gosh, I can't remember all the authors off the top of my head. But, you know, they had writers with on their staff, on the dev teams, sit down, hammer out these clue books that were written in lore, in universe, by characters that you could encounter in the game, uh, like Mandrake, I think, and uh, the Gypsy Lady contributed to the Ultima 6 clue book. Um, the Ultima 7 one was written by that adventurer guy, Adam. You can find him in Moonglow. Um, you know, and again, just... I think Serpentiles was written by Thoxa. Yes, yes, Thoxa, I think, did the majority of Serpentiles with a little bit of stuff from Zenka, as I recall. Um, yes. And again, just tons and tons of, of art. Uh, and some of the... You know, even, <laughs> even stuff like, you know... Um, the maps of the towns. I mean, these were brilliantly realized, you know, like they were drawn almost in exactly the same perspective as you saw in game, but it was almost better Somewhat than that. 
because some of the town maps were actually dumped dumped images uh, from the game's graphics proper. So for the first time before people wrote engines to actually recreate the ultimate games, you could see the entire town at once, yeah. each each pixel, and it looked incredible, especially in black and white. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, in others, it was drawn, uh, I think probably like based on sort of, because I've seen, uh, and I think in some of the design documents that are on the gallery, you can kind of see this process. If I haven't moved the Ultima 6 ones over, it's definitely apparent in there where you can see how they like drew the tiles out initially um, on graph paper, right? So it almost looks like, you know, uh, for stuff like in the Ultima 6 or Ultima 7 clue books, they've gone back to this line drawn, you know, the, the, the art that led to the creation of the tiles and the chunks and the whatever else they called them. Uh, and went back and then created these beautiful illustrations of the towns. And it was glorious because, you know, you could see the entire town. Um, in a way that, you know, it looked exact, almost exactly from the same perspective that it was in the game, except that you could see the entire thing, which until the advent of things like, you know, the Exalt engine with its uh, scaling control, um, you couldn't do, you know. You know, nowadays it's trivially easy to fire up Exalt on like a QHD display and ratchet up the, uh, you know, ratchet up the resolution and ratchet down the scaling. And yeah, you can see almost all of Britain on screen at once. Um, it actually bugs the game out a little bit but you can do it but at the time i mean 320 by 200 was kind of your limit there you couldn't see the whole town um at all but you could in the manual it was a really really um neat thing they they, they did um and again just the sheer quality of the artwork was um almost second to none uh you know dennis Lubay, uh i think did the lion's share of the work and uh, i mean it, as a line artist, the man is is basically unparalleled. Like he's just you know, and and this inhabits. Yeah, I would have to agree things. with that. Um, something else interesting. I'm not sure how the dates compare between the creation of the manuals for let's say Ultima Five, for example, or Ultima Four. Um, but if anyone is a fan of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons and the books that were produced, written by Gary Gygax, Gary Gygax, I'm not sure. Um, the artwork for those was extremely similar to the style of the artwork in the Ultima manuals and was of equal quality. Uh, not only that, but the way those books actually described the monsters, for example, in the monster manual, um, you know, in the spells, uh, was very similar to the Ultima series. I have to wonder if uh, Richard Garriott um, and his team at the time did not take inspiration from those. Well, so much else of Ultima did draw inspiration from um Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, that's where Calabeth got its start, right? And heck, even up until like uh, at least Ultima 3, um, a lot of the, you know, inspiration for the stories of the games came from D&D campaigns that Gary's running for his friends, the, the shape of the land. Uh, you know, like one of the reasons that um, Novia, the, the setting of Shroud of the Avatar, looks so very much like Sosaria circa Ultima 3 is because I think, or I suspect, I don't think it's ever been said, uh, yeah, it was D&D, &D, yeah, um, Gradia Dragon just, uh, mentioned in chat here that, yeah, Calibeth's original name was something like, yeah, D&D &D 27 or 28, yeah, 27B, um, it was, yeah, basically Richard Garrett had written a bunch of small little games, which he intended to be D&D &D type games, um, and, you know, the Calibeth just happened to be the one that took off and got noticed. He, he marketed it a little bit and then Calpac took it and away you go. Um, <clears throat> crap, where was I on that point though? Um, dang it, I got derailed. And my train of thought has like completely jumped off the track. Does someone remember what I was saying before I talked about a Calabeth? <laughs> oh, we were talking about the similarity between Dungeons and Dragons uh, right. manuals and the Ultima manuals and prior to that, you got me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can't remember. I mean, yeah, they, they were definitely, yeah, the inspiration was there. So I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, yeah, a lot of that uh, artistic influence was shared. And um, two, I mean, it, it's worth noting that, you know, like a lot of these guys, I mean, you know, we were coming out of places like Austin um, where, you know, like uh, I, I know that um, there was a lot of, of mind and talent sharing between uh, what became Origin Systems and like Steve Jackson games. Um, 
and I can't remember if Gary Gygax, I'm going to go with, um, was ever really affiliated with them, but, you know, certainly you're starting to see where, you know, yeah, you're getting this cross-pollination of talent between um, Origin as Game Dev or what became Origin as Game Dev and, you know, these other pen and paper developers. Um, so, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all if there was um, insp- maybe even inspiration in both directions there, right? So, yeah, I would not be surprised at all. Anyways, um, <clears throat> I know we wanted to keep this one a little bit shorter, and Audacity informs me that thus far we've kept it to a uh, rather brief 39 minutes. So, um, opportunity, I guess, to quickly share some final thoughts on this topic, and then there's a couple of new little segments that I'd like to jump into. Oh, oh, um, we did have some discussion going on while we were planning this one on the uh, Savage Empire manual. Oh, right. The uh, Pulp Magazine <laughs> style uh, manual that uh, came out with that one. And that one stands out in my mind for several reasons. Um, for one thing, the intro story to Savage Empire is presented as as the first part of a story written by the Avatar himself, which uh, kind of gave rise to my personal headcanon that uh, he makes his living when he's back on Earth by... Um, publishing stories of his adventures in Britannia as fiction. Um, but um, I recall there being an advertisement for uh, Savage Empire t-shirts with a sketch of uh, Ayala and Dr. Rafkin and uh, Professor Rafkin in the shirt. And um, it, it, um, it was very unique, to say the least. Um, it really helped with the kind of Lost World style feel of the game itself. It was unique, and actually, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. You know, <laughs> it's funny you mentioned the the whole idea of the Avatar selling books about his adventures because I mean, um, that's Tomb Raider, you know. And Kotaku highlights that actually in their article is the fact that you know uh, in the Tomb Raider manual it talks about how um, Lara Croft basically funds her wanderlust by writing about her crazy adventures and selling tons of copies of these books. So it would greatly amuse if, yeah, you know, maybe that was what the avatar was doing as well because he certainly doesn't um seem in, in if he has a day job it has to be flexible to sudden and unexplained disappearances and then reappearances probably with all kinds of um, injuries that would need to be explained away <laughs> uh but two i mean there's a uh the, the savage empire manual is also neat because it's one of the few that uses um photography as part of its content um there there's actually and it's on the origin gallery i forgot to put a link into the the quip document but i will into the show notes there's a um it's basically just a series of images from the photo shoot which was done at an indoor garden either in the office tower where origin was then located or in the office park where origin was then located or else like really nearby but it was an indoor photo shoot. I think they might have had some outdoor to it as well, uh, with, like, most of the developers dressed up in, yeah, like, Indiana Jones vests and hats and stuff like that. Yeah, I remember that. Didn't they present it in the manual kind of like as a quote-unquote upcoming movie or something like that? I think it was, like, meant to be that or, like, an expedition. Was it more like an... It was, like, an expedition kind of went a little bit sour. Um, Right. Yeah, so it was... Yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> again, like, you know, they with Savage Empire, I mean, they changed up a ton of how they approached this stuff. But you're right, it really did work. It was some of, I think, their most brilliant work in terms of developing content for the game. And again, just sucks you right in to uh, to the world of, of Aodon, or Eodon, however you say that. So, yeah, no, good call, good catch there, because, yeah, that was totally, um, de- definitely a significant achievement in terms of, you know, crafting a genuinely beautiful and engaging and engrossing manual that uh, enhances the experience. It really of the did game. feel like a magazine in a lot of respects. Yeah, and yeah, like total, total pulp magazine kind of thing. Um, felt right. I mean, I can, I can remember. It even included the letters to the editor section, if I recall right. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, it's funny, you know, I mean, it's kind of a sad, sad note to the story because it was, you know, after my dad's mother had passed away and we're going through the house. Um, his, his father had passed away, um, many, many years prior 
So, you know, now both of his parents are gone and we're going through the house. Uh, we would kind of, <laughs> we had this little tradition that we would do where we'd like go out there on a Friday evening. We'd stay till Sunday afternoon and then drive back home. And we're going, and you know, we're finding like old newspaper articles, but also tons of just like old, yeah, magazines, the, the pulpy, uh, you know, just, yeah, the, the, the pulpy, um, story driven magazines. Cause his dad actually, I mean, both of his parents were teachers, but his dad also ran a shop in the town. So of course would have sold a lot of like these old comic books and other stuff. Um, and so finding some of those and then, you know, seeing the Savage Empire manual, it's just like, Hey, this is, they, they not only, um, they, they nailed the vibe of it was, I think the more impressive thing, you know, is the fact that, you know, it's like, yeah, this is like totally a pulpy, um, story magazine from the 60s this is brilliant <laughs> uh so nice touch All before right. we move on i'd actually okay i'd actually like to bring it back back to ultima 5 the subject of our previous podcast but with respect to the manuals and any included text with the game there was actually a single sheet of paper um printed again um as if it were an illuminated manuscript as if it would perhaps be some actual journal that you would find in game that actually described the descent of Lord British and his party into the underworld. And I have never heard of any other game doing anything like this. You know, it was just a single page. It was not part of the manuals proper, um, something you might cast aside as being unimportant. But in Ultima V, when the Avatar first descends into the underworld, it proves to the curious, um, or the desperate, who looks deeper into their box, um, an invaluable resource in actually trying to successfully navigate the underworld, which is a terribly treacherous and unforgiving place. And uh, you could actually follow the same path that Lord British and his party followed into the underworld simply by following the text of the journal as written. And I will just read a couple of sentences from this. Uh, we embark again following a navigable stream south. After a short distance, a tributary branches off to the east but we continue south. The cavern walls now tower above us, dimly reflecting our torchlight. And the entire thing was written that way. If you read it outside the context of a game, you would not even think it was for a game. You would simply think it was a short story uh, that someone wrote, but uh, it in fact described accurately um, how to uh, recreate Lord British's path in the game, and you could compare their description of the notes to the actual the actual geometry, the actual tiles um, of the game itself, and I think that was just really incredible because that that tied the lore in a way to the game that was less abstract and less complementary, and in a way that was much more literal. But they didn't really say much of it. They didn't really advertise that. They sort of left that to the gamer to discover for themselves, almost optionally. There's a lot of details in that journal that show up in game as well. I played through that section of the game just a couple days ago, and they mentioned, you know, putting up a sign to commemorate, you know, the expedition, and it's right there when you drop down the falls. Um, there's a skiff left where they said they had to leave the boat behind. It's still there, and it's 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 just those little details that kind of make you smile when you're going through the game itself. Definitely, yeah. No, that's a. Uh... <laughs> It's it's a small piece of design. Oh, <laughs> okay. I'm not going to lose this train of thought, but yeah, Gradia just chipped in in the chat here that uh, Acalabeth was in fact originally titled D and D twenty eight B. So there you go. But anyways, yeah, Ultima Five. It's it's a brilliant piece of of game design, just completely aligning um, every little bit of that part of the world with this narrative account so that, you know, yeah, cause you're right. I mean, the underworld is this massive sprawling dungeon that's as big as Britannia and arguably bigger because Britannia has oceans. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, finding your way through it is, is a hell of a challenge and it's, it's great that, you know, they included this and yeah. Um, the fact that they went out of their way to make sure that every little detail of it was aligned with something you could find in the game. Um, probably for some players, that was a real beacon of hope. Just like, oh my God, I, okay, the skiff is here. Okay, let's, okay, I can keep going now. <laughs> um, so, all right. Well, 
I do. Think I was definitely that... thinking that the other day when I went through it. <laughs> like, oh, good, I'm on the right path. Yeah. Okay. Good. I'm not lost yet. All right. We're all right. All right. So uh, I actually wanted to introduce uh, a couple of new segments just to close out the podcast today. Um, one is just uh, random Ultima news stuff that will eventually make it into an Ultima Codex article. I have time to write about it. Um, so anyways, Rock Paper Shotgun ran an article by Richard Cobbett uh, in which various canceled games were discussed. Um, he talks about like Fallout 3 Van Buren, uh, an early attempt at The Witcher. Um, not the one from CD Projekt, an even earlier attempt. Didn't look anywhere near as good. And he also mentions Ultima X Odyssey and Ultima Online 2. It's pretty decent article overall, um, but I just wanted to point out that uh, it doesn't quite convey the complete history of Ultima Online 2 or Ultima Worlds Online Origin, which, granted, is actually a little bit complicated. More to the point, he kind of omits entirely that there were actually multiple attempts within Origin and EA uh, at getting Ultima Online 2 off the ground. One of the uh, pieces that's sitting on the gallery, one of the more recent pieces, is a technical design document for Ultima Online 2 from about 2004, so well after the cancellation of what was known as Ultima Worlds Online. Now that being said, Ultima Worlds Online Origin, or you know the original UO2, is, is easily the more well-known project. Uh, it's the one that most of the screenshots came out of. Um, you know, it, it's the one that was famous or infamous, depending on how you want to look at it, for the involvement of Todd McFarlane. Uh, or, I mean, he had, like, bits and pieces of, I think, contribution to it, a lot of which was ultimately recycled for Ultima Online, an expansion. But, uh, yeah, that's a, that is a, an interesting and somewhat tragic piece of Ultima history. If I recall correctly, um, Ultima Online 2, the 2004 attempt, was to be built with the same engine that was driving The Sims Online. So, make it out what you will. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention <clears throat> on the Shroud of the... Uh, was uh, just, you know, a little bit of news related to Shroud of the Avatar. And again, I haven't had a chance to make an article out of this. But, um, because... You know, it's modern times and not 15, 17 years ago. Uh, there are a couple of companion applications in the works for Shroud of the Avatar. Uh, one of these was given a shout out in a recent update of the Avatar. That app uh, was created by a guy who goes by the handle Brenton. It's currently being developed for iOS, so Apple's mobile operating system, and will be ported to Android uh, at some point in the future. Um, a recent beta version, uh, 6.1, has actually just been released. That app is very much about Shroud of the Avatar itself. It contains a lot of information um, relevant to people trying to play the game. So you find maps labeled, you'll find crafting recipes, you'll find the bestiary, you'll find uh, an adventuring guide therein. So it talks about like skills and combat. Um, and there's also the ability to take notes about creatures and characters. The other app is being developed by a guy named Materio. He actually has a small team put together, and they're targeting iOS and Android simultaneously. That app, on the other hand, focuses more on the community surrounding Shroud of the Avatar. So it connects to the Avatar's radio streams, it connects to the IRC channel, which the Ultima Codex hosts, in case you didn't know. It pulls in Shroud-related news from a handful of fan sites, uh, and it offers a calendar of community events. There's also some planned expansion features, uh, stuff like content from SodaWiki, which was um, the Codex also hosts and was co-built by Phoenix, you know, and other members of our talented Wiki team, uh, and also to include maps of Novia and its points of interest. Neither app is actually available on an app store, not iTunes or Google Play yet. Uh, both are still in beta, but the developers will happily add you to their respective beta programs if you send them an email address. One comment here, uh, which only just occurred to me, uh, and this with respect to Brenton's app, because of course it's, uh, you know, what's its focus? The maps, crafting recipes, a bestiary, adventuring guide. It occurs to me that we could potentially be, because... Shroud is not the first game to have companion apps developed for it. Um, I got a friend of mine actually quite solidly hooked on Neverwinter, uh, the MMORPG by Cryptic Studios, released a few years ago, um, set in, you know, the Forgotten Realms universe, Neverwinter Nights, that kind of thing. 
Um, but yeah, he got well and truly hooked on it, and they have actually a really robust companion app that you know even lets you do uh, some in-game stuff. Um, you can't play the full game, but you can like manage your henchmen and things like that. And it also contains a lot of information about the game. As far as I can recall, there are companion apps for WoW. Um, I could probably browse the App Store right now and you know find companion apps for a number of games. But just thinking about how Brenton has chosen to architect his app. Because it's fairly art-heavy. I mean, you see the maps of each town. You see uh, a lot of pictures of, you know, like crafting recipes, uh, monsters, things like that. And it occurs to me that maybe we've come to a point now where, at least I hope, I would like to think that we've maybe come to a point where, uh, even if a game doesn't necessarily have a highly illustrated, or illustrative and illustrated manual in the box that helps players enter into the mythology of it, we may be entering into an era where um, there will be apps either developed by third parties or officially, you know, officially developed by the same developers who build the games that serve a lot of the same purpose. I, I would really like to hope, actually, that we're entering into that time. I think we may be uh, for several reasons. I think, uh, you know, most if not all of us here and probably a lot of our audience, you know, are older and as such old school gamers you know have really seen the evolution of games you know from the early days you know perhaps not as early as actually seeing them in ziploc bags uh but the games coming with these elaborate manuals and excellent box artwork such as the ultimate games um we've sort of seen a shift an unfortunate shift where you start to lose the manuals uh, then the box suddenly turns from a box into a smaller box and then from a smaller box into a plastic DVD case, essentially. And uh, now, more often than not, a purely digital download where there is no box, and the concept of the box itself has become somewhat of a novelty, of a relic that you can only receive on a limited print run or production run if you've pledged on Kickstarter or the like over a certain level. And to someone like me, to a degree, of course, you know, that makes me... It makes me sad. It makes me sad to see what I loved change and die and transform into something else. Um, but, you know, there's not much you can do about it. And in fact, there's probably nothing you should do about it. Because another trend in gaming is that games are online and they're no longer static. Uh, when you bought Ultima 5, it was Ultima 5. It was almost pre-internet. Uh, there weren't patches. Uh, there weren't automatic updates. What was in the box uh, would stay that way forever. The software itself, the manuals that came with it, it was unchanging. And now you will have a game world that's dynamic, that's constantly evolving, that involves player-created content, uh, persistence. Uh, you can make changes to the world that stay that way forever. And I think that the manuals, if you will, that would be issued with that sort of game would actually be weaker and suffer were they issued in physical form because they would be static. It would be like buying a paper encyclopedia um, when you can have Wikipedia that's constantly evolving and correcting itself. So I think these sort of apps really are the logical conclusion of the types of games we play today where they're in fact not static but constantly evolving. And in the end I think game players will be better served by having an application that is dynamic and changing uh, and easily accessible uh, as opposed to having a piece of paper that will forever be the same and may not actually match the content of the game after time passes. Yeah, very true. Well, now that I think about it, didn't didn't Civilization V have links in the in-game encyclopedia that link to Wikipedia articles on the same subject or something along those lines? Well, maybe. Uh, I haven't played Civ V, so I don't know. Yeah, it's been a while since I have. Hmm. But I guess that would be another way to do it. I know within Shroud, I think they have some uh, call-outs to the Soda Wiki. So it wouldn't be a bad way to do it. But yeah, I mean, I guess that's the nice thing too about, you know, the app as the new manual, uh, especially if it's an art-rich app, because it can evolve with the game, you know. Um, so, oh boy, interesting times. At the same time, though, I guess it is worth noting, um, this thought just occurred to me as well, that, you know... Even if something like, you know, like I've got two maps for Ultima Forever. Uh, I've got 
the original iteration of the cloth map that they did a limited release of. And then I've got the, uh, uh, which depicted, the difference between the two, basically, Britannia is, by shape, almost completely unchanged. But it's just when they, the, the first map reflects the state of Britannia that, you know, we would have seen uh, those of us who got to do the alpha. Um, so it's, you know, very much reflecting the story they had at the time, which was a more conventional find the codex type story. Uh, become, you know, find the codex, become an avatar. It's kind of the general gist of that story. Um, the second map, though, shows the Black Weep uh, depicted across Britannia. And they were good. Like where you see weep infestations on this cloth map, you could go to that point on Britannia because the cloth map was faithful to the shape of the continent in game. And you could go to those points on the continent. And sure enough, here's a weep infestation. Um, so, you know, that was a nice touch in and of itself, but, you know, also, I mean, it, it shows how the game's plot evolved over time. Now, Ultima Forever is gone, you know, it is not, uh, no, no one's ever going to play it again. So in some way, I think having these things, um, you know, and it'll be the same for like, you know, the Ultima online maps, if that game's servers ever get completely shut down, although there are free shards, but still, um, you know, these things... Even if, you know, even if they're not accurate to the final state of the game that they're released for, there's still some value in them because, you know, they become now talismans, they become memory. Um, you know, they're, they're what's left when the game servers get shut off, so. Yeah, the EFF hopefully is going to have something to do with that. Um, I don't know if anyone's familiar with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, but they... Uh, I was going to save that for another a, podcast oh, episode, yeah. Um, they okay, have but just briefly, they want to keep... Yeah, they want they want to keep online games uh, within the public realm by essentially uh, open-sourcing them, or at least making them publicly available after the official game servers have gone down. Yeah, so... I don't know if we'll see that necessarily realized. I mean, for the, some of the PC games, it's already being done. Um, for the console games, eh, I don't know. For stuff like Ultima Forever, I mean, eh, again, I wanted to do that as a subject for a second podcast, so we'll definitely save that as a subject for another podcast, because um, eh, there's a lot of technical hurdles I think it would also have to be overcome there, in addition to all the legal stuff. Anyways, I think, because um, my furnace is now insisting on making a bunch of noise, that I'm going to bring this to a close for now. So... I had one shout-out. Uh, I wanted to thank Ben Steffens, and I hope I pronounced your name right, Ben, um, who quite cheerfully rebroadcasts the podcast episodes uh, on Avatars Radio every week. So that's really cool, uh, and thank you, Ben. And so, I guess, always remember, um, if you'd like to recommend anyone for a shout-out, you can just shoot an email to ultimacodex at gmail.com, uh, which you can also use to suggest podcast topics, commentary, criticism about podcast episodes, or, you know, if you'd like to chip in on a topic, um, contribute to a podcast session. As well, the Ultima Dragons groups on Facebook and Google+, uh, they're still there, they're still lively, the Facebook group more so. Um, but definitely join in if you haven't already. And finally, a little bit of a shill here. There is the Patreon. It helps fund the Ultima Codex, helps keep the, uh, the server running. And if I can get it to a high enough level, it will allow me to expand the server. Um, I can do more with it. I can store more content there. Uh, you'll also get access to Spam 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 Humbug episodes uh, the day before they go live on the Codex proper. Uh, that's at the $10 pledge level. But you know what? Every little bit helps. Um, and maybe someday it'll be enough that we can you know, really start seriously talking about upgrading the Codex server uh, yet again. <laughs> or we can just wait until, you know, I get like three more raises at work. But... Either way. So, that's all I've got. Uh, I'm going to say goodnight. I'm going to invite everybody else still on the call to say goodnight. Night, folks. <laughs> Good night and fare thee well. And thank you again for listening. Be virtuous.